We're going to talk about larger-than-life characters and small-as-you-can-imagine figures. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 26, we talk with not one but two separate guests in their own segment. We talk with Howard Whitehouse about Mad Dogs with Guns, his gangster game, recently out from Osprey Publishing. And then we're also going to talk to Peter Barry of Bacchus 6mm about the monopoly 28mm games and figures seem to have on the glossy magazine publications for the hobby. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Kings Hobbies and Games and Special Artisan Service Miniatures. You know, by now you know that I'm a big fan of Tim's creations. I'm He's not just my pusher, <laughs> he's also a friend. And, and I definitely can tell you that he is... 100% behind everything that he creates in cells. And because this is this is his hobby too. He's not just doing this to make extraordinary amounts of money cuz, you know, for crying out loud, very few people make any money at all in this business. But that being said, he's he's definitely into it. He definitely keeps his his eyes on the news groups and on real life what's going on and getting up-to-the-minute latest technology that's on um, the world's battlefields onto your gaming table. You can't get any more recent than what Tim's doing right now. It's it's really spectacular stuff. And since we are talking about 28 mil, uh, pretty much everything that he does currently is geared towards 28 mil, but one of the good things about using 3D rendering and 3D printing is he can rescale it to just about any size you want. Uh, within within reason, if you want to get some of the vehicles and whatnot that he is producing down to six millimeter, uh, maybe not. But uh, don't want to give too much away about my discussion with Peter. But uh, you might, we might be talking about 3D printing with with Peter also. But anyway, if there's something that that Tim is making that you want in a different scale, all you got to do is ask him. See if it's even possible. And the way to do that is you go check out what he offers at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. And check out what he has. Shoot him an email. You never know. Maybe he can uh, get that size down for you. Up next, my discussion with Howard. to welcome back to the show Howard Whitehouse, author of Mad Dogs with Guns. Howard, how are you doing today? I am fine, thank you. I am I am holed up. I'm the, the trunk of a 34 Buick right now, so if the sound's a little off, it's because I've been kidnapped, and I'm headed off to an undisclosed location where my kidnappers will probably ask for $500, and that will come down to $50. Yes. <laughs> Now you had mentioned it's amazing that uh, in the trunk of the Buick there that you've got a a large parcel of forty millimeter toy soldiers, right? Yes, yes. I uh, I, I, it, I I hate to use the phrase "one" when it comes to eBay auctions. That always seems a little off to me. Um, but they're uh, they're 
somebody I'm thinking there's somebody's home cast uh, figures from at least 50 years ago mm-hmm. um, I, I'm very fond of the toy soldier style yeah and uh, I managed to pick these up for uh, I you know I, I, you, you do the thing where you'll put your top bid and then sort of hope nobody actually wants them more than you and apparently uh, apparently nobody wanted them more than five dollars so I won them I won I think something like 70 or 80 figures total uh, for five dollars and fifty cents plus shipping which of course was, was twice that because yeah. it's lead right and uh, they're wonderful they're 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 semi they're they're what they call semi-solid or uh semi-flat so that mm-hmm. uh, uh if you look at them from the front they um that's not the best way to look at them but that's fine right. with me. and you paint <laughs> them in a very shiny pink-cheeked uh kind of way and uh, I always pick regiments I like the look of rather than regiments that actually, you know, are part of any kind of order of battle. Well, sure, sure. Um, because that's that's how it goes. Right. I was going to say my American Revolutionary Army, which are the 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 comic the famous comic book flats mm. from from the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, are are exactly the same in that uh, the uh, I have simply picked regiments where I like the uniforms rather than you know have anything any particular events that they serve together. Well, sure. I mean, that's good. So, um, as good a method as any, as far as I can tell. It's all for fun anyway, right? Yeah, well, it's it, it's all part of the way of saying this is not to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not an exact thing. This is men who are old enough to, to know better, but don't. <laughs> and we're playing toy soldiers. At least old enough to know better, but don't care. My my friend Dan and I, who's he's about my age, and has been playing since about as long, and we worked out that with with a few years from now we will have a hundred years of wargaming combined nice. between us. So we can shake a shake a stick at any young whippersnappers <laughs> we want. I've got a box of uh, of undead figures up upstairs that I need to get into that's from the Skull and Crown Kickstarter that they ran for Renaissance Skeletons okay. all based off of the woodcuts of the Renaissance mm-hmm. Masters like Albrecht Dürer and guys like that yeah so I'm, I'm oh, really excellent. excited to get into those but yeah. I haven't yet I've been too busy but anyway we are here today to talk about the I, I guess it'd be the second edition wouldn't it of Mad Dogs with Guns your 1920s and 30s gangster yes, skirmish uh, gang game, right? That's that's right. Yeah, we uh, we had put out the first. It was the first project that my my friend and colleague Roderick Robertson uh, and I put out as uh, as Pulp Action Library in uh, 2012, and um, that came about. We had I had started writing the rules, uh, more or less at a at a. Re- not sure request is quite the word, but possibly suggestion mm-hmm. of Mark Copplestone. Sometime around the, the time when he was working on his uh, his gangster range, and he came up with some ideas that he'd like to be in the game, and we played with it, and um, I, I, I played on it for a while, and then I got a bit stuck, because that's how it works sometimes. You know, other projects came up, and Roderick jumped in and wrote just a whole chunk of campaign stuff and things like that, and 
Roderick's a wonderful editor. Uh, he works primarily in the, the RPG industry. Um, so he's, he's both good at inventing rules and editing. Um, his, his style of editing with me largely consists of putting random thoughts that I have put on paper, putting them where they mm-hmm. match and make sense, which I appreciate. But anyway, we, we'd done that um, probably, this would be 2009-ish, something like that. And um, we, ha- we had a, a, a publisher in mind, which fell through, um, just, just didn't quite gel at all. And um, we sort of decided... Uh, more or less by accident that we would see if we could just put it out to get you know just create invent our own company um, which I suggested be called Pulp Action Press and Roderick pointed out that that the the abbreviation for that was PAP <laughs> wasn't tremendously impressive and he said how about Pulp Action Library pal coming to you from your pals it's like oh that's better. So, so we did that, and um, we sold 19 copies because that's how it works. And um, but everybody seemed to yeah. like the game. It's a very sort of story-oriented game. It's it's not a competitive game. It's a it's a you know here we are out on the street in some godforsaken town in Illinois in 1921, um, where a bunch of people who've been drinking for days and have mm-hmm. firearms just decide to go at it. And I can't quite remember exactly how it happened. Uh, you, you'd ask in your notes, mm-hmm. you'd ask me how, how did we get in touch with Osprey, and I can't remember whether they asked us or we just sent a bunch of stuff to them and said, "Right, anything look interesting?" Probably the latter. Um, but we were very lucky in that uh, Phil Smith, the uh, the acquisitions fella from Osprey. Um, uh, who uh, happens to just love this period? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he was just very excited, and uh, we went, and we went from there. It, it turned out that um, um, a number of years ago, when he was quite a young fellow, because obviously I'm ancient, um, had asked somewhere online for some Victorian sci-fi stuff, and I had just sent him a bunch of things I'd been working on. So, okay. take a look at this. Um, so he remembered me from that. And so that so that's that's been fine. And um, one of the things that makes a difference between the, you know, the the pulp action library version, which has somewhat, you know, mediocre photographs of non-professionally painted figures and scenery. Um, I'd actually sent all my figures to Roderick because he's a less bad photographer than me. Um, and and they're, they're, you know, 15 years ago we would have said, boy, this is great, lots of color pictures. But by, by modern standards, you know, it was like, yeah, this, this is not going to do. Um, but Osprey, of course, he's able to have these, these wonderful studio photographs. Mm-hmm. And um, and they got uh, my old friend Peter Dennis, who uh, who was one of the... Uh, he, he was He's actually an early mentor of mine in that back in the middle 80s, he had a tiny little company called Hardcover, which made... Um, paper buildings and some rules and um, he asked me if uh, if he he, 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 he wrote to me and says uh, 
Well, the good news is that uh, I've got a publisher for Science versus Pluck, <laughs> which is my big set of rules. Uh, it says the bad news is it's me. But actually, that was excellent news. And he was great then. So I've, yeah. I've known Peter since I was something like 28, which is not recently. Um, and he, of course, is an astonishing illustrator. So to have him, you know, do the do the do the the pictures was uh, was just a huge a huge bonus all around. I think. Um, so uh, so then we got this this nice shiny book. Uh, he looks around to find out whether he has a copy of it to hand, and he doesn't. So so don't ask me what's on page twenty six because books downstairs. <laughs> um, well, the the appropriate answer to that is, of course, gold is on page 26 <laughs> and 27 and 28 and 1 through 25. And I suppose, what is it, like a 120-page book, something like that? It's something like that. It's, it's a decent-length book. It's, um, um, yeah, so uh, uh, occasionally, you know, as, as somebody who's been writing rules for many, many years, the astonishing thing is the number of people who contact me about things I did many years ago and mm -hmm. assume that I have the information in my head. So people will say, I wrote a, a set of rules called Honor and Fortune in the late 80s for uh, Ulster Imports, which was, um, it was the late Greg Novak and a couple of other fellows, I don't quite remember who, um, would, were importing Frycore figures uh, from from Northern Ireland, uh -huh. and they they had a uh, uh, an eighteenth century India range. So they asked me to write a set of rules for it, which I which I did. And again, this is in nineteen eighty eight, something like this. Um, and people will, you know, saying I've got these rules, and what did you mean on page seventeen? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I just. And their last week was, well, does it mean this or this? And the answer is, I have no idea. What works for you? I mean, you know, it's not like you're, there's an official tournament of this 30-year-old right. game that sold, <laughs> you know, 100 copies, you know, worldwide. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it, it, it gets a little strange sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now... Fast forward to today, and we're, uh -huh. we're talking about Mad Dogs with Guns. We should probably say what it is, I guess. Um, now, it's it's a 1920s and 30s gangland game of thrilling adventure, story-based action, uh, maybe a little bit of humor, uh, bloody, bloody combat, guys and guys and gals or guys and dolls I should say to to borrow from from Broadway and so definitely a skirmish type game right yes you you have a gang um, and that can be as you, that can be a formal gang where you sit down and you know create your own and you know name them and you know give them specific characteristics for each person and you know, all that kind of thing or you can just say ah, I've got Five fellows. The one with the machine gun is a torpedo, or you know, the one with two guns waving them about is the crazy, you know, the crazy gunman. Um, you know, with, well, you, 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 you kind of you just kind of make it from there, mm -hmm. and so you, you can do it as much as you like. And plus, there are civilians, and the, in the game, because there are civilians going about what passes for normal life in the 1920s, 
which as far as I can understand largely consists of dodging bullets <laughs> um, but you get to it, it's a card based game um, you uh, you have seven cards of which there are the three uh, court cards king king uh, jack king queen and uh, four other cards plus uh, the ten on the ten uh, you get to move civilians now you get to move all the civilians in the game the rule for the civilians is that you can't actually use them to help you, but you can use them to hinder the opposition. Mm -hmm. So that if if um, if one of your figures runs into a store, deciding just that it's time to it's time to rob the liquor store, which is you know actually it wouldn't be a liquor store, but rob the corner store, um, and the card come and uh, and the card comes up. Uh, you can't actually have the, uh, the, the 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 store clerk, you know, carry carry the goods to your car for you, but you can have them not fight you. Whereas if if it was another person who was who who was there to rob the corner store, and and then you you draw the your the civilian card with your your suit. So let's say I'm the hearts. It's the ten of hearts. I decide that the 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 store clerk. Uh, goes mm -hmm. for a shotgun, you know, because you know, whereas if it was me robbing it, then obviously he'd be extremely right. compliant. Um, and we have one of my favorite. We have uh, uh, newsboys. The newsboys are are very active in our game. They run around trying, um, shouting out, and uh, essentially uh, commentating on the action. And we have a woman with a pram, uh, um, pushing yeah. a baby. And it's we can pretty much guarantee that she will be obstructing anything because it's understood that you cannot run over the young right. mother with the pram. And I would hope that there's a large set of stairs somewhere to have a uh, Untouchables like scene as well. <laughs> or depending on the types of gangs you have, Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> I haven't tried that. I've tried that in in a in a recent game where I was trying to uh, to hijack. A, a convoy of of, uh, of hooch coming down a, a, a main street that was perhaps rather wider than was good for me. I had a fellow with a shotgun on a roof, and when the the truck went by, of course he shot at it and didn't really do much. So I then had realized that in actual fact I could either run you know back into the store and you know find some way down the stairs, or I could simply jump down mm -hmm. into the alleyway. So of course I decided that he would want to jump down in the alleyway, and he rolled against his stunts. Stunts is sort of a dexterity roll, which yeah. he failed badly. So we decided that he essentially had managed to break. It was, he was just jumping down from a one-story building, so it wasn't you know incredible. But we decided mm. he'd broke his ankle. So rather than being part of the, you know, he was now laying there with a broken ankle. So on my my friend Dan's next turn. Uh, for the civilians, he ran one of the newsboys over to see if this this boy, this guy wanted to buy a newspaper. <laughs> well, you could roll up a newspaper to make a splint. That's right. That's right. You've got, you're lying there in agony, and some annoying twelve-year-old is annoying twelve-year-old. You uh, you you repeat yourself. <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. So it sounds like definitely a card-based activation, then, right? Yes, it's it's a card base. You are allowed to hold cards. You're allowed to hold three cards um, to use to interrupt the other person's flow of the game. Okay, uh, that's because we've all played. 
I remember playing Wild West games where essentially you acted on your card, mm -hmm. but that was it. Or you acted when it was your turn. And if you stuck somebody up, there was actually no reason for them ever to give up because you'd taken your turn, which was to stick the gun in their face and yell at them. And so on their turn, they would either pull their own gun and shoot at you or simply leave. And I thought, well, that doesn't really work, does it? You know, it's just... Uh, so we came to the conclusion that if you stick a gun in somebody's face, and you also have a card that says, if you don't cooperate, I will play this card and shoot you, that that really alters the dynamic. Right, right. And, and, and also, one of the things I'd play in skirmish games is that if you're, you know, in that sort of what we would think of in modern warfare as an Overwatch position, mm -hmm. where in a, in a gangster game, it would probably be, you know, I'm... I'm hiding in the alley, and as soon as they cross in front of me, I will shoot at them. But if you don't have a mechanism like that, what will happen is that they will simply walk across the alley when it's not your turn, and then you have to sort of embarrassingly run out and run right. after them, which is all a bit, bit Keystone Cop-like. Um, not that I'm against Keystone Cops, but it's sort of like, yeah, I think if I'm waiting to ambush somebody, I should have a mechanism to make it work. Right, right. Now, being a skirmish game, and you you did mention Mark Copplestone, who is easily in my easily in my top five, possibly top three miniature sculptors. In fact, I I can see one of Mark's creations on my on my table right now. Mm -hmm. These you're you're definitely recommending twenty eight millimeter figures, whatever that means to you, whether it's bottom of the foot to the eye or to the top of the head and I yeah, never worry about Mark, that Mark definitely has a very nice range of gangster figures and there there are some others out there as well I won't say I have most of the gangster. I probably have most I don't have all the gangster figures out there because otherwise you find that somehow you have collected more uh, more armed criminals than actually existed <laughs> ever uh, my, my, my gunfighter collection is a bit like that uh, Mark's figures are wonderful. Um, Bob Merch from Pulp Figures yes. does wonderful, wonderful figures. Um, aside from that, um, Lana Brigade Games has some fine gangsters. Um, the uh, the first range I collected, um, this would be in the when I was first doing pulp games in the early two thousands, was from Steve Barber mm -hmm. in England. And they were 25, so they were on the small side. Don't think they're available anymore. Um, but they had a lot of character. And, and, and I, I know, as a, as a uh, Humphrey Bogart fan, that just because somebody is only 25 feet, 25 millimeters to the hat, doesn't mean he's not dangerous. Well, and indeed, of, of real gangsters, uh, uh, Mayor Lansky, who was uh, uh, a tiny little man, but uh, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. There is a, a story about Lansky, and I will tell this, even though it's, we're actually talking about model soldiers, um, where a biographer uh, decided he would he would write about him when Lansky was in his eighties at this point, and couldn't get an official interview. This guy, he was this the, the, the he Lansky managed to do what all gangsters really wanted to do was not to die in a blaze of glory, but to retire to Miami and live well. And he was doing that. So he's this this little you know, little old Jewish gangster who of course, you know, is just an old man who's taking his walk around the park and he's being followed by this this, you know, middle-aged journalist who's, you know, noting what he's doing. 
and suddenly the Lansky's missing and the biographer doesn't know where he is and he's hiding behind a tree and so as soon as the biographer gets there this guy this 80 year old tiny man leaps out and asks him what the hell he's doing and the biographer is just mortified he's just terrified of this essentially psychotic senior citizen <laughs> who is you know five feet three so um you know it's it's about it's about presence yeah. it's not about oh certainly certainly i was gonna say so the barber figures which uh, again if you come across them they are they are small but they're really very very nice and i i i, I like them a lot okay um and when you're when you're setting up a game, what what kind of play area are you talking about? Like a two by f- two by two foot, three by three. It it can be pretty small. Yeah, it it can be especially if it's a small game between sort of two or three people. It can be two by two, three by three. Uh, one of the the issues with gangster games is that because it's primarily an urban milieu. I don't get to say milieu every day. Um, you know, you do need buildings and. You know, for most of us, you know, urban buildings, especially the, the sort of the, you know, the 20s type where they're multi-stories, they don't exist on their own. You know, you'll, you'll never see a, you know, a, a, a nine-story building, you know, just standing in a field. So you need a mm-hmm. bunch of them. And so it's almost like you need an element of a cityscape. And given that, you know, a two-foot, three-foot area is is really quite right. big. Um, it, it's it's plenty because otherwise it, otherwise it becomes for most of us anyway it becomes completely uh, you know unmanageable. Um, I've done bigger games sort of in the outdoors. One of my my favorite sort of scenarios involves a gang going to uh, uh, pick up uh, pick pick up Canadian liquor from uh, at a jetty on a on a le- one of one of the Great Lakes. Because that way you can be, you know, you can feature some some of rural America. You know, you're on the, the south bank of Lake Ontario mm. or something like that. Um, where uh, so you've you know you essentially you need a far, you you need a you know, a jetty, uh, some farmhouses, a lot of woods, some uh, uh, you know some, some rather some back roads, and. Um, you know, you can spread out a little bit without without having to actually own most of downtown right. Chicago. Well, it, it also has to be said that there's plenty of other opportunities in, you know, suburban areas where you might have a few more vacant lots or you might just have a, a single structure surrounded by a lot and or right. a rail yard, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you could a guy could pick yes. up. Oh, I would guess O scale track would probably probably be best for 28 mil figures. Uh, once you start talking about rolling right. stock, it's going to get pretty cashy pretty quick, but it can be done. Yeah, and 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 I again, it it depends on how how you know what you need. For instance, um, you know people will tell you that uh, the the correct scale for these figures is S gauge, but S gauge is monstrously expensive. Um, so getting some secondhand O gauge stuff. Um, Go to a, a oh, model yeah. railway show, where you know, pick up some pick up some cheap secondhand stuff. Um, I, there's a certain element of depending on on, on how much you fuss mm-hmm. about authenticity, and for me, um, there's it's kind of a sliding scale in that uh, 
Um, I'd like things to be as accurate as possible, but realistically, I know that's not the case. For instance, model cars, and most of most of my cars are diecasts, mm-hmm. uh, uh, days gone or uh, yesteryear. Now, scale-wise, they can be a bit iffy because they were right. made for, to fit the box rather than. Um, and the the day the days gone, which are also known as Lido, uh, are usually pretty close. The the, the um, yesteryear, which is Matchbox, tend to run a bit over scale. Um, but my assumption is that Ma and Pa are driving around in a Ford Model A, right. which is actually a very small car. It just looks tiny. Um, so so that's fine. Whereas the boss, you know, clearly he's driving around in you know a Lagonda or you know just a Duesenberg. Something, some you know, and, and realistically, this might this might not actually be thirty feet long, <laughs> but it feels like it. It, it feels you know it, it's like an Abrams tank. Yeah. You know, it's just this massive thing. So, so it may be the model may be overscaled. It may actually take two turns to run around the thing, <laughs> but that that has to be. And likewise, most model cars tend to be of the '30s rather than the '20s. And again, you know, if if I'm playing with somebody who says, "Well, yeah, but that actually that car didn't come out till 1934, and we're playing in 1928," I think he's rather missing yeah. the point. <laughs> and he's and he can't come to my house ever yeah. again. It's it's almost like are you looking for are you looking for accuracy or are you looking for verisimilitude and there's a big difference there, you know. Yeah, you know, especially if you can't, you know, especially if you just plain can't get the genuinely accurate. Right. It's it's a it's a little bit like those when people watch, especially World War Two mm-hmm. movies. And they gripe because the vehicles aren't the exact right yeah. model. It's like, well, you know, I, I am sorry, but the number of working Panzer threes available for hire is probably not that yeah. big. <laughs> you know, you, you, you work with what you... And I mean, we, we all, you know, we remember when a World War... When the Germans... Uh, cons, um, the German armored forces consisted entirely of... Uh, M48 um, painted gray with really big black crosses yeah. on the side. Because <laughs> that was that was how you knew they were yeah. German tanks. <laughs> you know. <And laughs> so yeah, it's you can you you can sometimes you just kind of have to go with what you've got and go yeah this, yeah this, this and is it. and let's face it I mean the the, the person that's going to rivet count a, a gangster game isn't the person that's going to play a gangster game anyway. That That's exactly my feeling. One of, one of my policies over the years, when I, especially when I write up the blurb for a convention game, is to convey the tone of the game in what I write. So, for instance, you know, if I was going to do a gangster game, I'd probably, you know, write it in a sort of mock Raymond mm-hmm. Chandler fashion. Um... And and everybody would the idea being that that it almost it, it it attracts people who will want to be in this kind of game, but it also puts off the kind of people who aren't going to enjoy it. Um, because there's very little point, you know, you know the guy who he really wanted to be in a six mil grand simulation of the Battle of Kursk, 
but he couldn't get in, so he thought he'd right. come and play this gangster. <laughs> now, you know, the, the attitude with the one, you, it doesn't really transfer. Um, you know, so I, I will suggest, you know, yeah, bring, right. a, bring a flask of hooch. I don't actually want people to do that necessarily, but just to say that this mm -hmm. is that kind of game. Um, years ago, I remember running a, a pirate game, and it was, you know, it was a game where if the player got wounded, he had to put an eye patch on, and if he got two wounds, he had to carry it with a, put a plastic hook on one hand. So you kind of got the, the tone of it from that. But I had this one guy who really cared about the difference between a 24-pounder and a 32-pounder, you know, in a pirate game. And it's like, well, you know, you're... Everybody just yelled, ah, and drank <laughs> rum. Do you think it really matters? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. You have to fit the... You, know, you, 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 you Right. Every game has a tone. And... You know, we've talked before about the whole, you know, telling right, people right. they're having fun wrong, and and I and I don't think the fella who really cared about the, the, I don't think mm -hmm. that fella was having fun wrong, <laughs> but he was having he wasn't right. having fun in this game because it was the wrong place for his sense of of what he wanted, um, and I wasn't having a lot of fun with him there because because it was just like come on, just just come on, it's it's a big gun, big guns. You know, this, big guns do this much damage. We don't distinguish between the different kinds of big right, guns. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, because we're wearing we're wearing, we're wearing a Halloween pirate uh, eye right, patches. Right. You know? It's the same guy that's going to complain that your the the character card distinctly says that he has a forty five, but the figure obviously has a Browning high power. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. You know, good for you. Good for you. Here's a gold stick. Yeah. <laughs> So we've got we've got we've got a base activation se sequence, and when okay, so my my card gets drawn for my torpedo, which is kind of like a professional gunman, right? Right. Let's let's. Well, you, first of all, you have um, your cards are on on the, the the court cards, the 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 jack, queen, and king. You can move a group. Um, actually, you can move, you can move everybody. I'm sorry, you can move mm -hmm. everybody. All all your figures, wherever they're on the board, get to do stuff. And each player has a suit or a color. Uh, it depends if it's um, if there's just two players. Um, we, actually, uh, think about this. You know, it's just a, it's just a suit. Okay. So that so that if there were four players, you would have all four. If there were right. three, okay. you would you would only you would you would get one. Um, if you have five players, um, we have to think about it. But um, but uh, on a, a uh, just say you you, you drew a, you, you know you drew a four, three or a four whatever, and he's just trying to remember whether fours are still in this pack because um, I cut down the, the number in the pack. But just uh, uh, then you get to move either one figure or a small group of that figure plus anybody within okay. two inches of him. Uh, that means that if they're all in a car or if they're all a group are running down a flight of steps or you know into an alley. You know, essentially, the leader goes, and everybody else Got goes it. with him. So, let's say your torpedo has two guys behind him. On his card, uh, he gets two actions. He can walk four inches. He can run four inches and a die roll, so somewhere between five mm -hmm. and ten inches. Um, he can shoot, 
Uh, he can, you know, do any kind of basic action, kick in a door, get out of a car, get into a car, uh, all those kind of things. Um, he can, you, you can, you can shoot while walking, though not running. We, we assume that you, you might try, but it doesn't do you any good. Uh, it actually is a good idea to stop and aim. So, I, so rather than just shoot, if, if, if you and I were, you know, in a room together, then I might shoot you twice. But if you're across the street, and, and Jay, right. I'm, I'm using you as an example. If you were across the street, I would be best to actually aim at you and then shoot. Um, a, because it's a better chance of hitting, but also a better chance of actually damaging. Because probably 50% of, of shots that are in theory hits are actually near misses that make you right. back into cover or, you know. So there's an awful lot of, of, of you know, I shot at him and he, he, he ducked back around the corner. Um, you some weapons you can aim others pistols you can blaze away uh, tommy guns mm -hmm. you always blaze away uh, tommy gun i didn't want the tommy gun to be too powerful a weapon because uh, otherwise everybody would have 10 of them and you know um which was they just didn't do um so the the, tom, the tommy gun is really noisy uh, is very dangerous close up uh, jams easily and you constantly have to reload it um, and also the uh, the, the magazine, uh, you know, it's so the big the big round magazine is so big right. it really spoils because of your suit. Yeah, pe people assume that Tommy guns are absolutely normal. They don't seem to have been, and a big part of that, apart from that, they're really quite inconvenient. You know, you can't pretend you haven't got one. Um, is it brought down the heat? And and in the campaign campaign rules, the campaign rules are all about running a gang and essentially competing for business uh dominating a neighborhood by owning by owning some clubs getting protection from other businesses uh driving out the opposition right. and, those, and those kind of things um what what you don't want to do is is is, is, mm -hmm. is get a lot of public outcry against you because then the, we assume that the police that everybody has paid off the police at least to a degree um you know if you're a, if you're a police sergeant in this uh, the the town we use is called Paradise, Illinois, which which doesn't exist. Um, just in case anybody from Illinois wants to look it up on a map, it doesn't exist. But we assume that if you're a police sergeant there, you are paid almost nothing. But every Friday, you make the rounds uh, of a certain mm -hmm. diners where a, a man will give you an envelope. So so you basically you, you're paid to just stay out of the way of of these people's business. But if the heat gets you know if, if the public outcry gets too much um then obviously you're going to have to do something and if you're not careful the you know the the g-men will be there um and one of the things that that makes the public very unhappy is machine gun fire they they can tolerate a certain amount of you know single shot weaponry going off because you know that's just how it is um but uh you know, you, you, people start cutting loose with Tommy guns right, right, too right. much, and there are letters in the papers. So that's 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 sort of how that how that works. Um, we played a game recently in which one one player, uh, having uh, run out of ammunition for a Tommy gun, picked up the Tommy gun belonging to a, a, a fallen member of the opposition, and is standing there holding a Tommy gun in each hand <laughs> um, when the police come busting in. 
and he's he, evidently he's kind of hoping that this that the uh, the morale effect will do will you know do the job. But in actual fact, the uh, the police roll really well, bust down the door, and just barge into him, and then they just kind of you know essentially yeah. cosh, cosh him to the floor and arrest him because you know it wasn't his turn and he didn't have a hold card so you know right what kind of dice are used just just regular d6 i'm a uh, over the years uh i basically decided that i like d6 best they're very traditional um and the thing about them is because the uh, the jump between numbers is quite a big one mm-hmm. um it means that when you write modifiers they have to mean something, right? Um, I think if you're writing for again for a D twenty, say the 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 idea of going well that would be a kind of an advantage. So that's a plus one, you know. Whereas a plus one on a D six is a big thing, right? You know, so so you, the, the 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 temptation to have a, a big list of modifiers is is less. I, I noticed that in in Mad Dogs with Guns. The modifiers for uh, for shooting um, include a lot of things like, you know, you are in a you you are in a, a racing car shooting. <laughs> There's a lot of them involve sh- people shooting from one car to another, mm-hmm. and you know the, <laughs> because people do this. But in actual fact, if you're in a speeding car and you're shooting at somebody else who's speeding in the other direction, eh, chances are you're not going to hit. Right. Right. Um, my my favorite modifier, and I have no idea. I don't remember putting this in, and I think Roderick must have done from some uh, one of the um, one of the scenarios, which is shooting from a ladder. <laughs> Where did, did uh, surely I didn't put? Well, you know, minus one, it's dark. You know, minus one, I'm walking. Minus one, shooting from a ladder, and yet it's there. Well, that would count fire escapes, also, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There you go. Um, so, yeah, you know, so apparently, you know, so evidently, it's a minor. It's you know, your, your chances are not as good if you are shooting from a ladder. Yeah. So, there you go. <laughs> now you mentioned the the campaign system, and there's a little bit of you could you could do a map if you wanted to, but I don't think it's necessary, is it? Not really. Um, we we actually started out with. My, my artwork is horrible. Um, so we started out with with me just sort of drawing this very blobby map of this this fictional place, which had a you know had a river down the middle and it had a couple of bridges, and then sort of blobs that indicated that this was this was Chinatown and this was this was the Italian neighborhood, which I think I called it wasn't Hell's Kitchen. It's some variant on that. Um, I don't know, Hell's Spare Bedroom, something like that. Um, you know, and then there's a fancy neighborhood, and, the, you know, the, the, where the mayor lives. But that's all you really needed. To, and and we, we ended up with a much nicer map. But um, we went through a stage with, with the publisher that never quite came off. He was very, very gifted at, at mapping. And so suddenly we had this elaborate ward map, you know, with that just got too fussy. Mm-hmm. Because after all, if let's say that I'm I'm a member, I, I I lead a small gang, and I own, you know, two nightclubs, you know, a tiny, you know, a, a, a my own brewery, and three laundrettes, 
and I know they're and they're in this neighborhood and everything's within like five minutes of each other. I don't actually need to know the street. Right. It's just not really important. If if we're gonna play a game, we'll, we can make something up. But it doesn't really need. I don't really need to know that this happens at 217 Street. You know, it's, which is you know just up from Oak Street where my laundrette is. It, it doesn't matter. You know, this is my neighborhood, and you're not coming in. That's that's really right. what we need to know in the, a gangster game. Right. Now, the the gangs are open for a little bit of, of advancement, right? At least, especially with maybe your main characters. Yeah, that's that, that that's right. It's not again. It's it's what you do is you get richer. Um, you you know the characters can improve, but the main thing is you get richer, and you can afford more things, and you can afford to bribe more people and mm-hmm. buy more cops. Um, you know, it's I, I I don't particularly like the sort of the Dungeons and Dragons approach where you are constantly by sort of building yourself up into a right. sort of a superhero. Um, these, these guys really didn't physically change very much. Um, you know, Capone got old and fat. He did not turn into, you know, into this killing machine. He, you know, he got old and fat and had early dementia. So, so yeah, I, I um, so what you would do is you would you would develop by taking over other gangs' neighborhoods right. and driving them out of business. Okay. And again, trying to stay in good with the local politicians and the cops. It's not a very honest world we're living in here. No, not at all. Now, we had a discussion back and forth a little bit about a book that I recently finished. I mentioned it in the last episode, uh, Patty Whacked by uh, yes. J.T. English. What were some of the other books that uh, either you used as research or just simply informed uh, where Mad Dogs with Guns went? Um, there, there are a number of them. Um, one of my favorites is called The Outfit by a fellow called Gus Russo, which is a history of the Chicago mm-hmm. outfit. Uh, for those who, who don't know, that essentially was the, what the Capone gang turned into uh, after he was arrested. Um, and it's it's fascinating because the the important thing to know about the uh, the gangs as they developed is that they the the, the original gangs pre prohibition were small time local outfits, um, bit of protection, bit of prostitution, bit of sort of small time small time this and that. You know, politicians would hire them to beat people up. They were they were they were nobody. But then suddenly this massive business opportunity came along called Prohibition, where you essentially got to sell things to people they already wanted. And the smart gangs turned into essentially business corporations who were just a little more heavy-handed than regular business operations. Um, you know, the dumb, the dumb ones were just criminals, and they, they, mostly, they mostly ended up dead or in prison. Um, and the, the Chicago outfit decided, uh, under a fellow called Frank Nitti, um, that it was ridiculous to go around wearing these loud suits with, you know, the, the black shirts and white ties and, you know, machining, machine gunning people on St. Valentine's Day and just generally bringing a lot of attention. So they, they essentially be, became just organized crime as a business. Um, 
and so the the book goes through the uh, th through how that went up up until the present day. Um, the business of laundering money was actually invented by a, a member of the gang who was a Welshman at the time. His name immediately um, escapes me, Llewellyn, I think. Um, uh, he was not a gangster in the normal sense. I probably never carried a gun. Um, but he came to the conclusion that if you had to, uh, to turn d dirty money into clean money, that doing it at the right. racetrack, which is a traditional method, you know, that was just too obvious, that actually, if you bought lawn, if you bought laundries, um, you could essentially just send all that money back into the population in a very small but regular way, and it couldn't be traced. You know, you, you get a a, a a big thick wad of banknotes, and you just send it back through the laundry, and um, mm -hmm. very very hard to trace. Um, so the, the 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 Chicago outfit was very very, and, and it goes on up to the uh, through the fifties the and sixties where, uh, um, you know the up until you know the the, the whole Kennedy assassin right. their involvement in the Kennedy assassination, which well, nobody really right. knows, but there's a lot of stuff. So it's just fascinating stuff. So I, I recommend the outfit by Gus Rousseau. The other book series of books I recommend is actually fiction, and it's by. Uh, Max Allen Collins, who's a wonderful, wonderful uh, American crime writer, who's probably not not nearly as well known as he ought to be, but he wrote a, he still writing the series. Uh, starts out with uh, a book called uh, True Detective, which takes place in the early thirties, involving a, a Chicago cop called Nate Heller, who is brought in like, without really explaining what's going on. To uh, an assassination uh, attempt to uh, to, ki uh, to kill Nitty um, by uh, by a couple of, of very dubious Chicago detectives, and the, there's a whole series of books with him in which this guy they start out in Chicago. Later on, they they move elsewhere. Um, of this essentially very hard-boiled detective, he's. It's very much in the sort of the Raymond Chandler Dash Hammett vein, except that because they're much more modern books, um, we understand that the detective is not nearly the knight, the white knight walking the street mm -hmm. that perhaps the the nineteen thirties version is. Um, he's um, his he's his hands get dirty. His hands get dirty, and and it's it's a wonderful series. So so look out for Max Allen Collins. Uh, any of the, the, you can read them okay. out of order, but the the Nathan, the Nathan Heller. All right, books. and I guess if you don't have time for for reading, <laughs> for inspiration, what what movies would you recommend? I've got a couple myself, but I'd mm -hmm. like to hear your ideas. You know, people tend to think mm -hmm. of the, the, the the same ones over, like the the Untouchables or you know, Miller's Crossing. They, they're great films. Um, I do like the the I do like the older films. Um, one of my favorites, which gangsters are sort of tangential, mm. but it's one of my favorite films at all, is, is The Big Sleep, uh, which again is a Chandler novel made into uh, made into a movie with with Bogart in 1946. That's the uh, the the uh, with, with Lauren Bacall as the femme fatale. Um, gangsters are you know, Eddie Mars owns a uh, uh, 
a gambling boat off just outside the uh, out, uh, outside the, the limits. The, um, the and so uh, so that that that's a that's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. I've obviously enjoyed Boardwalk Empire. That's 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 good. What is the what what's the again the the gangster you know there's the traditional gangster era which is very prohibition and then it sort of runs beyond that and in terms of what the gangsters are up to it's a little different they're they're no longer you know carrying illegal hooch around in trucks because why would they need to Uh, what is the uh, the 50s movies la confidential oh yeah very yeah early to yeah yeah oh man that's such a great movie that, that is such, that's you know and, and I think that's probably isn't as well known as it ought to be um, you know I mean we you know we all know the Godfather yeah. you know, we all know, but I, but that that's that was one that I think is particularly worth, worth yeah in LA for. confidential um, to set your games in LA in in the mid 50s would be mm-hmm. so aesthetically brilliant you know that would you know the the later it, days it, of it art would. deco moving into art nouveau and that that whole look and the neon and the palm trees and men men in uh-huh. linen suits and the ladies in you know real real thin gauzy dresses that'd be great and you can you can get the diecast oh yeah the yeah 50s. and if you're talking about the uh, you know, if you're you talking want... about the 50s uh what was that show i loved it it was uh crime story with dennis farina mm. oh right. man that'd be great cuz then you could well anyway <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, and and again, you sort of have to you you look at the models and you go, well, this is really a, a '30s figure rather than a '50s figure, but you sort of have to make a decision about that. Um, you know, in the late '50s, they the the brims on men's hats get much smaller. You get into that sort of that yeah. Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. fedora look, um, and unless you really want to spend a lot of time with an right, exacto right. knife. You probably have to go. Ah, yeah, we yeah. haven't taken. Well, that, that that could be an interesting project for some for any sculptors out there who are looking for inspiration for sure. But uh, though that being said, you can get the sort of the kiss kiss bang bang. Uh, oh yeah, spies and some of them have the again that 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 skinny suit mm-hmm. look that sort of comes in sometime in the late fifties. Oh yeah, absolutely hmm. yeah. Now a couple I like of movies, idea. yeah, a, a couple of movies that again the the gangsters are somewhat tangential. Um, one is the front page, which is set right. in Chicago in the '30s, and it just gets the feel right. It's basically about a couple of newspaper men, and you can't go wrong with Jack Lemmon and Wal- Walter Matthau. Um, mm-hmm. And right. another one set in Chicago that definitely has gangsters is The Sting. And the Sting does amazing things with its external and internal sets, and in costuming, mm-hmm. and the music, and the the lingo and everything. It's it's really a, a a master class in how to make a period film that is completely and totally engrossing. Right, and of course, my my mind has completely the Tom, the, the Tom Hanks movie Road to Perdition from a few years ago. That's the one. That that that's and again that's that's another Max Allen Collins. Um, he 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 wrote the screenplay and, yeah. and and the um, and the graphic novel and later the novelization of it. 
wonderful and again a lot of out you know a lot of scenes out in the country mm-hmm. things don't have to be in the city right and the 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 best movie for that and it's gonna it kind of takes the the gangster movie and turns it on its ear is last man standing because it's a gangster western yes <laughs> and, of, and of course you know if you if you own a model western town um you know, some western towns turned into midwestern towns fairly quickly. Right. You know, a lot of brick, fancy brick buildings and prosperity and that. But others didn't. You know, some of them stayed very much wooden frontier towns. You know, for many many years until they were either built over or fell down. Exactly. Yeah, just a a great a great era and a great well to borrow your term milieu to to work in is the is the gangster game and you can you can have a lot of fun with it and you can still be removed from the realities of the situation i guess because of for lack of a better term the romantic romanticization romanticism oh absolutely i i i mean it's funny we we played a a game some while ago at a local store and i asked one of the one of the guys who's not a, a He's not a historical war gamer at all. If he wanted to join in, and he did, and he was great, he was fine. But he said, "You know, I'm not really sure. I, I want to play criminals," <laughs> which was like, "Well, this is true." And and yet, you know, there's no actual endorsement. You know, I, I this gang is not. I'm not actually, you know, thinking that it would be great <laughs> to lead a lead an organized crime outfit and. Eventually retire to Miami and uh, yeah. frighten journalists. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 it, we, we are right. playing toy soldiers. Right. That's always the case. So Howard, it's just, it's been an absolute blast to talk to you again. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been enormous fun, as always. Well, I, do you have anything uh, in the pipeline? Anything new coming up? I, your gentleman's war with. Uh, with the toy soldiers, I'm working. I'm working on the gentleman, gentleman's war, which which right now exists in two forms: is the the sort of the classic H.G. Wells sort of pre-1914, but we have been using it for a lot of American Revolution games, which it seems to work very well for. Um, which a little bit, you know, it's because it's 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 simple and and clean and um, you know we don't fuss too much about the details so it seems to be it seems to work quite nicely there uh the other project that i have been playing with for years without ever actually having a you know a final version is um a sword and sorcery game which originally was called chainmail bikini which <laughs> shows you the the level of seriousness involved i suspect that we'll probably have to call it something a bit more sensible but very much a sort of a tongue in a tongue-in-cheek um, mm-hmm. Look at, at that genre. Um, it's less the it, it's it, it's less the sort of the the brooding Conan of the of the books as the rat on a stick punch right. a camel kind <laughs> of Conan. It's you know it's I, I always find that the the brooding brooding characters are tough to game. Um, people who punch camels much closer right. to my idea of, of what it should be. So it'd be, you know, it'd be the game with, um, we, we, we've played it a lot of conventions. Um, on one, one, one occasion, there's a, there is of course a, a group of young women in, you know, in chainmail bikinis, which of course counts as full plate armor for all purposes. Um, and one player uh, essentially decided, to, who was playing them, decided to treat them 
as if they were sorority girls from Old Miss <laughs> on vacation, on spring break. And it was very, very <laughs> funny indeed. Um, and right. <laughs> and it's, so it's, that, it's right. that kind of game. It's that, it's that, that kind of game. We're, we're, we're always coming up with odd little ideas for games, some of which get somewhere and yep. some of which we just sort of put, put aside. Um, and we'll come back to them at some point. Well, again, Howard, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure. Look forward to having you on the show again in the in the near in the near future. I will look forward to that. I'm now pleased to welcome to the Veteran War Gamer Peter Barry of Bacchus Six Millimeter. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Jay. Thank you for asking. All the better for speaking to you. Oh, thank you very much, indeed. Now, you were just at a war game show over the weekend, correct? That's right. The the, the World Championships at what was Darby and is now uh, Brunting Thought Proving Ground. And how An did interesting that... interesting little venue. Yeah, how, how did that show go? Um, well, I'm, I'm sure you'll find lots of people telling you about, uh, about the show on the web. It's a new venue, and uh, it's got a few teething troubles. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But... The, the nice thing about going to any show is I just got to see lots of people, talk to my customers, talk to potential new customers, um, chew the fat with people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Great. Good deal. Now, we're here to talk about primarily the preponderance of 28 mil figures in articles in the mainstream magazines. Uh, it, it should come as no surprise to any, any listener of this show that back a six millimeter does exactly what it says they make six millimeter figures for a wide variety of uh, eras and genres because you also have a fantasy range now you you had a, a science fiction range but that's been moved on to someone else so it, it shouldn't be you know any secret that you're gonna want to talk about how great six mil is and that's okay because i actually you know <laughs> again anyone who's listened to the show knows that i agree 100 percent but first, we want to just talk about how you got started in the in the hobby and what makes you a veteran wargamer. Mm, um, my age is probably the, the first thing that counts is the answer to that question. Um, my first experience with wargaming was back in the 1970s. Um, uh, I started with the usual path, which most people do, which is finding some FX plastic figures or the like and just um, playing around with them. But I first got involved with what you call serious wargaming. Um, about 1972, 73, WRG 4th edition Ancients Rules caught my fancy. And uh, I joined my local wargames club, which is in a small town in the north of England called Halifax. Uh, and I played with what was available, which was 25mm minifigs and plastic airfix figures converted with various bits of pins and banana oil. I met there a person who got a profound influence upon my future wargaming and an attitude to it, a chap called Ian Beck. Quite a few of your listeners may have, if not heard of him, heard of some of the rules he produced. Um, you don't hear his name anymore because, very tragically, he was killed in a car crash in the 1980s. Uh, but he, he was a remarkable guy, and he had one huge philosophy of wargaming, which was that it should be fun. And in a, an era which was dominated by tournament and competition gaming, that was quite a novel approach. 
So we played huge amounts of non-standard games, including lots and lots of skirmish games. We did Western gunfights, uh, gladiatorial combat. Uh, we produced a, a wonderful game called Pony Wars, which was uh, Hollywood Western. I think that's the easiest way of describing that. All the John Ford films turned into a, uh, mm-hmm. a war game. Everybody played the cavalry, and the the hostiles, the Indians, were uh, controlled by uh, a random dice mo- roll. Um, something which Peter Gilder later picked up on for his very, very famous Sudan games. And it was this, how can I put this, slightly different attitude to wargaming norm, um, which set the seal upon what I've done ever since. And so that was the 1980s. And my preferred era of warfare was 18th century, more period, English Civil War. And again, at that stage, everything I did was with what was available, which was then 25mm, and what later uh, changed into 28mm. You'll notice I haven't said the word six up until this point. And I'm not going to for a while, because I never looked at six millimetre figures. I did what everybody else did. If you reach for what you are used to for your next project, and I carried on quite happily doing that. And during this period, um, I wrote and had published quite a few war games rules. And again, this may come as a surprise to some people, uh, for 25mm wargaming and again 28 mil by association uh, a set of English Civil War rules called Forlorn Hope uh, which although many many years have passed since they were written um, still done the test of time and they're used by an awful lot of uh, uh, Civil War gamers out there uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know the set uh, again for the English Civil War I wrote a smaller scale action called File Leader and that was designed for use with 15mm figures uh, but I wrote what became a series of rules again for 28mm skirmish gaming uh, starting off with English Civil War uh, Napoleonic and a wonderful set which was uh, Pirates and following on the inspiration from my late good friend Ian it wasn't ordinary mm-hmm. Pirates, it was Hollywood Pirates with a capital for Hollywood great fun and I still play that genre of gaming today now that, I'm sure, will come as a big surprise to an awful lot of people who've got me slated down as uh, uh, Mr. Six Millimeter. It's perfectly true. I didn't actually start doing little six mil business, which I'm sure you want to know more about later, until we're, we're talking about the hmm, late 1990s. Uh, is that veteran enough for you so far? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <I've> got... <laughs> whenever, whenever someone says, well, I discovered these plastic Airfix figures... <laughs> <laughs> you know that they've been in it for a while. Well, I hope sure. that's established my credentials anyway. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how did you get started in making game figures? Ah. Um, <clears throat> like many of my compatriots during uh, sort of the, the early 1990s, late 1980s, uh, I, I suffered a couple of years of resting between jobs. Uh, it was very, very hard to get jobs. And I had to do something to basically stop my brain turning to mush and dribbling down my nostrils. You have to keep active. So I decided I would just try and make some models and sell them, which would get me a bit of money while I needed it, but also would, would keep me working, keep me active. And I originally started scratch building big 25mm scale models, which I was already doing for my skirmish gaming. 
and you'd put three or four weeks working to making this wonderful model, and people would offer you a pittance for it because they, they weren't prepared to pay the money, they weren't prepared to commission you the sort of money it required. So I thought I'd turn my hand to making just one model, making a resin cast of it and selling the resin, which sounds great in theory, but as I said, I was, uh, I was resting between jobs, which meant money was very, very tight, and I worked out the cost of buying all the rubber and buying all the resin, and it was way, way out of what I had to hand. Mm -hmm. So I downsized, I thought I'd do the semi-15, and when again, once I'd done the calculations, the options just weren't there. And so, reluctantly, and because there were no other options, I started making six millimeter models and six millimeter buildings. And um, one of the first things I did was, I followed up a long-standing interest of mine, which I said was the 18th century, by trying to do some city fortifications in, in what war games call the Vauban style, with the original bastions and redoubts and earthworks. And I found, to my absolute joy, I could suddenly do these huge, huge fortifications which looked right on a decent-sized area and fight games with them. And it was like a light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. I could use small-scale stuff. It didn't need to look bad because the, the scenics that was ringing out made them look stunning. And I could play wonderful, wonderful games of the sort of size I'd always dreamed about. But like any guy with lots and lots of big figures, I'd got half a dozen unfinished projects on the go. And here was my chance. Everything else followed from that. I teamed up with uh, another chap who was starting to make his own little range of 6mm figures. He did the figures, I did the buildings, and we sort of got on for a while like that. But his attention to detail, his quality control, wasn't up to my standards. Uh, I am absolutely fanatical about getting the very best out that can be done. And he just couldn't uh, produce what was needed. And people were associating me and my buildings with his very, very poor quality figures by association. So one day I thought, I must be able to do better than this. And I literally just picked up uh, some milliput, made an armature, and made my first figure. And it wasn't very good. It, it was pretty poor by today's <laughs> standard. Uh, I still got I still got some somewhere. Um, very poorly designed, but it was better than what was available at the time. Mm-hmm. And I made another. And again, like any wargamer, suddenly, suppose, Jay, you have the power to do the figures that you've always wanted, but nobody else made. And you could make your own range. Mm -hmm. Think of the little smile that comes to your face when you think about that. It was like giving somebody access to a sweet shop. Right. I was able to make what I wanted, how I wanted it, in the poses I wanted, and I just ran with that. Uh, so the first ranges that I made wouldn't be commercially viable uh, by today's standards. They were what I wanted. Uh, English Civil War, which then surprisingly sold very well. A Great North War, which nobody made at any scale. Uh, personal passion of mine. So I made it and people bought it. And it escalated. And what became a very, very small little niche, the more I pushed it, the more I took it along to shows, the more it began to again, catch people's imagination. They began to see the same sort of opportunities in the scale, which when presented properly, which is very important, offered the chance to do the projects they've always wanted to do, but never had the means to do so. Mm -hmm. 
and from there it grew. Yeah, and the the company name Bacchus Six Millimeter. What's the what's the inspiration behind Bacchus? Um, I, I usually ask a good question at that point and skip on. <laughs> um, are you going to embarrass me? No. Okay. Uh, the Latin, as I'm sure you know, for berry, is Bacchus. That that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. You knew that. Yeah. It's ba- <laughs> Jay. Come on. <laughs> Uh, it's Bacchus, but it's actually spelt B A C C H U S. Right. I sent a whole lot of stuff off to the printers, my very, very first set of catalogues and cards. I didn't proofread it, and they all came back spelt B A C C U S. And having got it there, I really had to run with it, and it's remained that way ever since. Uh, and uh, yeah, the six millimeter bit, I've always upfront with what I did. Right. Um, so I thought, if you have what I do in the name of the company, you know exactly what you're getting. Uh, and that, for good or for ill, is what I've been saddled with for the past 15, 16 years or so. Mm-hmm. Recently, you you published a, a blog post discussing the lack of six millimeter coverage in the in the full color glossy magazines. And anybody who has followed you for any amount of time will know that this is not a new story for you. Um, I was looking back mm-hmm. onto some of your previous posts and opinion pieces, and yeah, this is this is nothing new. The getting the word out to the masses about the the glories of six mil, while at the same time defending against those those folks who only work in twenty eight. Uh, you know, this is like I said, this is not a, a new concept at all. I guess we should discuss what are the key points to that argument. Well, I, th- I think the, the first thing to say, Jay, is like a lot of people, what you took away from the piece I've written isn't what you actually wrote. Um, it, yeah, yeah I, as I said, I'm, I'm probably mi- much, much misunderstood here. Um, what the actual piece said, this wasn't a specific issue about signal versus 28 mil. I've done enough of that in the past. I have form, and I can understand why people would pick up on that as being the thrust of anything I write. But it wasn't. Um, what it's actually saying is the glossy magazines, and I think it's almost by accident, um, are beginning to present the, the entire hobby as being 28 mil, fair enough, and skirmish. And it isn't just six mil that doesn't seem to feature in the magazines. It's any scale uh, where millimetre is prefixed by 29 or mm-hmm. 27. If, if, if you're 15, if you're 18, if you're 42, 54, 3, 172 plastic, does not appear in the fa- pages of the glosses. And if you fight a game which involves more than 30 or 40 figures on a side, it doesn't appear in the glosses. So you're getting not only an orthodoxy of the type of game that's played, but an orthodoxy of the, the type of figure with which it's played. And to my mind, that doesn't reflect the huge diversity of style of gaming, of type of figure used that the hobby presents. Um, it doesn't reflect naval warfare. Uh, it doesn't reflect people who use aerial warfare. 
there are huge numbers of 10 mil games being played now. And I know this is a vast number of 172nd plastics. They do not appear in the page of the glossies. Now, the editors, and I know two of the editors uh, very well. In fact, you've talked to an ex-editor I knew, which is Henry Hyde. They'll all say the same thing, and I agree with them, which is they can only publish with the articles with which they're presented. Um, and it's almost as if the rest of the wargaming world that works outside of 28mm has retreated from contributing to the magazines. Uh, they also have admitted mm -hmm. it's easy for them. 28mm figures are incredibly photogenic. They, If they want to pop along to anywhere within the uh, environments of, of Nottingham, they can get uh, the Perrys, they can get uh, Warlord, they can set up a, a display, take a photograph. They can go along to a war game show, again, because they're easy to use, you can take photographs, and the stock footage, the things you can use, are all in that scale. It's far, far harder to set up magazine style or ma current magazine standard shots or small scale figures. So they will take the path of least resistance, right. especially with right. deadlines. They're already human. So it, it, it's an issue which I think the hobby as a whole faces, not just right, right. me. So I think it's a little less controversial than right. normal stuff. It was, it's just an observation as much as anything else. But it has <laughs> created a well, storm. I, well, I've had Jasper Ortiz oh, on wonderful. also, and he talked about just the grind of producing well in his case four magazines on a bi-monthly basis and you can you can certainly appreciate if you've been in the publishing industry and I worked for a uh, my college newspaper for three years and that's you know that's a daily grind in that case you know I, I can certainly appreciate the desire to do or the desire to create the best looking product you can because at the end of the day a magazine or any printed product it's a visual medium and I can appreciate the desire to put forth the the best image that you can but at the same time uh, searching out efficiencies for lack of a better word in the production of your of your product and yeah I wonder if there wouldn't there or there couldn't be a way to streamline that process for these other scales if that makes sense or is it just a matter, like you it said, is. of, well, <laughs> they're is, um, in Nottingham, and guess who else is in Nottingham, and that's the Perrys and Warlord and, you know, granted, GW has their own magazine, but but still, you, you you've know. Got all, well, you've got the happy accident for 28 mil gamers that Nottingham, the Games Workshop in Nottingham has created a spin-off of people producing figures in, in a Games Workshop style but in the historical period. So, I mean, the Perrys... Warlord. These are all ex-workshop employees and sculptors. So that that that, that genre uh, develops nicely around there, and it's very easy to tap into access. But I, say, I, I think the editors have got a hugely difficult job. Um, so I, I, this isn't right. necessarily a criticism of the editors. It's a criticism of the contributors. That's us. Everybody mm -hmm. is relying on everybody else to write the articles they want to read, but nobody's putting the contributions in. I, I've made this point very forcibly on, on my own backers forum, uh, and to be honest, to anybody who can be asked to, to listen to anything I write, sorry, read anything I write, uh, because it, it is very, very important. Um, you want to read about 172nd plastics. Right. Write the article. 
take the photographs and send them in. Um, it isn't somebody else's responsible to, responsibility to do that. Um, the magazines don't have staff writers. I think the magazines could do more, don't get me wrong. Um, uh, they, they could seek out uh, and, and commission uh, even amateurs to try and get them done. Uh, I'm always on tap, and again, the editors know this, if they want to accompany uh, some of their articles with smaller scale photographs, they can always ask myself. I've, I've got a very good photographic setup and a large range of figures, which is accessible. And uh, bless them, a couple of them right. do do that occasionally. But that's me. Um, this has got to come from a much larger mm -hmm. part of the hobby as a whole, and other manufacturers and other scales. Um, I, I don't want to see the a monoculture right. and a homogenization of a hobby into one format, mm -hmm. uh, which is closely aping that of the Games Workshop. Yeah, I, I think that you're hitting the nail on the head there, that if you want to see X in the big glossy magazines, you need to produce X and show the show the editors that there is a uh, an audience for X, and then more members of the X audience will also contribute and, and go forward with that. And to a lesser degree, that's almost the kind of what I'm trying to do or trying to demonstrate with this podcast is if you want to do it, or if you want to see more of it, then do it. You know, I thought that there was a, a little bit of a lack of veteran perspective in in the podcast sphere for gaming, so I got off my duff and did it. And there are plenty of articles out there on how to write and how to how to photograph miniature subjects. And, well, Henry Hyde has, has articles on both, and there are certainly other resources out there for people who want to write but haven't taken the plunge. Because writing isn't terribly difficult. Writing effectively mm -hmm. is, though. Oh, yeah, I, I'd quite agree. Uh, but again, uh, an editor, if he's worth his salt, will take a right. draft. And if there is something Absolutely. in there worth doing, he will help refine that draft with the writer. So you must never be afraid of getting your thoughts down. Uh, a professional editor will help you refine right, that right, right. the article you both want it to be. And it's just like any other aspect of the hobby. I mean, there's I, I'm certainly <laughs> certainly one of these people who talk more about the hobby than actually <laughs> participate, unfortunately. But yeah, there's there's somebody out there that can help you do what it is you want to do in the hobby, no matter what it is. And that's and one of the great things is. I have seen less and less negativity about new people in the hobby in in more recent times, if that makes sense. And I, I think I think overall, yeah, it does. Yes, our Certainly. participants are starting to realize that if if we want this hobby to continue, then we're going to have to be open and willing to share and willing to help and maybe not be so negative towards the neophytes, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I, I, I can never understand that. I mean, I do get I do get new customers, people new to 6 mil all the time, um, and it shows. Again, people look at, oh, I couldn't paint those, or how do you, how do you game with those? One thing right. you don't do is, is, is just, well, if you, if you have to ask, don't bother, you know. Um, you encourage your help. Um, I happen to think I'm helping them to a greater uh, experience in wargaming, and if I happen to make a sale on top of that as well, I'm a businessman. But I, I cannot understand the attitude of anybody Absolutely. turning their back upon somebody who is genuinely interested enough to ask a question. 
it beggars belief. Something that I say all the time is the only the only stupid question is the one that goes unasked, because it because it demonstrates the individual's desire Absolutely. to learn, yeah. and that's never a bad thing. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you into a secret. We 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 do mm-hmm. tours around our workshop every year uh, prior to our Joy of Six War Games show. They're always well attended. We get we get war gamers turning up just to find out how the little men are made. Uh, fascinating tours, and every year. Somebody will say, oh, I'm bringing my wife or my girlfriend or my partner. Uh, they don't really want to come. Um, can they just sit in the corner and read a book? And I said, bring them along. Because I like... The wives, the girlfriends, the partners will stand there for five minutes looking bored. Then they'll actually just watch what's happening. And then they'll ask questions. And they ask all the questions which right. the war gamers there were afraid to ask or didn't think of asking. And they're always the most intelligent questions, the ones that actually get right to the number of right. But the other lot really didn't just look silly by asking them. And mm-hmm. asking questions is a great yeah, way of learning because the answers you get. That's just great. You know, I, <laughs> I'm gonna have to play this segment of, of this show to my wife a couple times. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you both invited to come over to our next workshop too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so when is do you have a joy of six for 2018 or yeah for 2018 yet uh, well we're still in the arranging it we we, we are having uh, a meeting which will be hopefully later this week uh, to sort out the venue uh, we're, we're the show is growing rapidly very rapidly and we're at the point where we may actually have outgrown our current venue mm-hmm. uh, we, we had games on the waiting list we had trades on the waiting list last year uh, and if we carried increasing the number of people through the door at the rate we're doing, uh, I think we're going to be bulging at the seams. So we're we're having we're having a, a policy meeting, uh, but it will be the same date as usual. It's, it's the middle weekend in July, okay. and it will be. Uh, I'm hoping it will be as magnificent as the last three or four have been. Uh, absolutely stunning mm-hmm. show now. Yeah, that. And again, I'll get another soapbox here. If you think six millimeter figure is six millimeter war gaming is something akin to board gaming, or the figures can't be painted nicely, or the terrain is just bits of felt, or it's ants crawling across the table, come along and see these games. They are truly, truly mm-hmm. breathtaking. Uh, the pictures we have on the website don't do them justice. Uh, these are games which should be taken out of the context of the joysticks and put into the larger events as well. But again, I, I think it's another case of the six millimeter wargaming community seem quite—I don't know—timid or almost afraid to just go out and show what he can do in in the the greater general wargaming world. But these these games are right. awesome and well well worth a visit. Sorry, that that's the advert for the show yeah. for, the, for the moment. The uh, yeah, looking at the the time frame that unfortunately would interfere with uh, my annual game weekend that I have for uh, for my friends but I could probably make an exception if our <laughs> if we were actually able to get over to the UK in that time frame a couple other things I wanted to discuss kind of dovetailing with the with the topic at hand do you think that with the rise of for lack of a better term internet publishing basically blogs and forums and things of that nature do you think that they have a chance of 
getting the word about six out to a greater audience or do you think that the magazines are still necessary to get that word out okay this is actually i've discovered again as a result of this article and reaction from that it's quite a controversial area um my opinion and it's only my opinion i will stress this is that blogs and the internet are become mostly mm -hmm. self-selecting and self-serving if you have a blog done by a chap who's absolutely fascinated by ooh, one 300th tanks, the people who will follow his bar, blog and look at it are people who are also interested in one 300th tanks. If you've got a chap who has got a wonderful colour chart for highlighting nasal hair in 28 mil figures, the 28 mil figure fanatics will regard it as a gold mine and will visit and go and see him all the time. But why the hell should somebody who wants to know about pre-war naval, pre-World War One naval, go and talk to that chap. So you can see that some of the larger forums um, uh, will seem to settle about one scale, generally 28 mil. But there's very, very few general uh, blogs, forums, sites that have the, the magazine uh, approach of being uh, a big church broad tent they you go to somewhere because you beat people of like interests other people not like interest drop out because there's no interest to them and you end up with closed groups so around the internet around the blogs you've got closed circles closed loops and there's very little um, dragging these loops together in a nice big Venn diagram sort of way and this is why I think magazines are important that they've been dismissed right, left and centre across many of these discussion groups following my piece as being irrelevant because I don't buy them. They're of no interest to me, mm -hmm. which has become another self-selecting loop. But I think they are. that they, they can hold up a mirror to the hobby. They can provide a snapshot of the hobby. They, and I do firmly believe they can drive opinion, but they should offer that big picture. Now that's my opinion. Um, they're commercial organisations. They they may say they need to serve a particular sure. audience to get their advertising stream and their subscription through. But this is where I think the magazines offer something which, in the internet era, blogs, forums, even podcasts, can't do. Uh, now I'll mention podcasts. Uh, uh, yours, in particular, and Neil Shuck's Beeples and Miniatures are two very, very good examples of what I would call a magazine approach. You, you will look at different genres, different scales, different individuals within the hobby, and not just focus on one. But I think that approach needs to be taken to the print media as well as mm. uh, the... Well, the well thank you kindly. I, I certainly take it as a compliment being mentioned uh, with Neil in the same breath, so thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think that, again, one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is talk about a lot of different aspects of the hobby and, and folks that have listened to the show before know certainly know that I've that I mentioned the big tent aspect that our hobby has there's a lot to offer people that you know folks who are into you know painting the the <laughs> painting the nose hair on their 28s can can get enjoyment out of the hobby as well as those people who you know don't particularly like painting and see it as a a necessary means to to the end of getting on the tabletop and playing 
And by the same token, there's people who don't play games at all, and all they do is paint the figures. Or they just collect the figures. Or, you know, they, they collect rule sets, and then all they do is read rule sets, or maybe they just write rule sets themselves. And, and again, you'll... You won't ever tell me. You won't ever hear me say that's not the right way to do this hobby because there are so many different ways to to participate and pursue this hobby that I think that there is there is literally something for everybody in the greater miniatures wargaming hobby, and uh, that's that's part of the reason why I love it. Another part of the reason is well, I got into it. <laughs> I got into it when I was twelve, and we tend to. As we grow older, we we tend to go back to the things we liked when we were in middle school. I've noticed, so that's uh, <laughs> that, that's that, that's where we that's where I find myself anyway. Especially with my my newfound or refound interest in Warhammer Forty Thousand. <laughs> now I've edited out a little bit where <laughs> where Peter had to go to the door to, to to uh, receive his his mail. And he got some new master figures in, and I guess that leads us right into where I wanted to wrap up with what's what's next for back of six millimeter. Well, at the moment we will be finishing off what's been a, a major um, re-release, really, for us of some older figures. We've taken the our old English of War range and replaced it with some absolutely stunning new sculpts. Uh, the, the, the quality of these figures has got to be seen to be believed. The, the sculptor has done amazing things. Uh, we're about halfway through that project, um, so we'll be finishing that off, which will take the range to cover the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and I'm sure most of your listeners will know that 1618 was the start of the Thirty Years' War, so we're heading for the 400th mm -hmm. anniversary next year. I'm expecting a lot of interest in that. So I've been accompanying that uh, with the release of some flag sheets to go with the, the new figures. Uh, we're currently up to 300 new flag sheets to cover that period, uh, with projections for another 100. These are individual designs, so with another 100 mm -hmm. individual designs to follow. Uh, so we think that will keep people quite happy for a while. Uh, we'll be following that up by going slightly later in period, we'll be covering the 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 Nine Years' War, the Scanian War, the, the later seventeenth uh, century wars, um, the mm -hmm. year of the Sun King at his glory, uh, which is something people have been asking for for quite a long time, and we'll be taking the opportunity there to expand and redesign a lot of our uh, flag sheets for the period. Flags oh, absolutely, are very yeah. important for six millimeter figures, so it's. Uh, it's uh, a good opportunity for us to, to, to facelift some of these. Uh, and again, that, those are two big projects. Okay. Uh, where we go from there, well, we've got, uh, uh, again, we're taking some older ranges out of commission, which we have right. to do every so often because the moulds wear. And we're going to do uh, a further re-sculpt and relaunch of our Great North War ranges. And I have some quite amazing plans for that. So that that's pretty much all okay. 2018 taken up there. Uh, skipping centuries, the other two big projects we're involved with are both 20th century. Uh, now, three years ago, we didn't have a single 20th century figure in the range, not one. Uh, since that's come, we now have complete ranges for Great War, mm -hmm. uh, for British, French, and German 
and that's a lot of little men and guns. Uh, and in World War Two, we started releasing um, infantry and support weapons for uh, basically 1944, 1945, uh, and that has expanded rapidly. We are on an ongoing project to start producing vehicles and artillery to support the World War Two. Oh, uh, but we're using. Yeah, we're, we're doing it a different way. We're, we're working from computer-generated models to produce the masters right. to produce the final moulds, castings. But what we're doing is, is actually, in the scale we're doing it, technically incredibly difficult. It's a process that's been used for bigger figures, for 28s, for quite some mm -hmm. time now. You'll have seen quite a lot of this going on. But what we're doing, um, we're working very much at the cutting edge of what's sure. possible. And it's a certain degree of trial and error. Uh, having having had several errors, uh, we think if we go back to one way we've done it earlier plus another way we've just done which might work a bit better, we should be able to start that process and get the models out before the end of the year. And that will become uh, wow. a major feature of uh, 2018. And what we're producing will be awesome. There they are, uh, beautifully scaled. Um, beautifully proportioned uh, uh, models, which will fit perfectly in scale with the infantry. Yeah, that's that's exciting because there has always been a mismatch in previous years. You've got people who produce very high quality um, uh, micro armor in one three hundred one two eight five. Right. The, the designers have always been about the hardware, and I've I've always thought that the you know the soft squidgy bits that fire machine guns and you know ride around on, on the back of tanks and form the majority of the army. They, they've actually mm -hmm. been shunted to one side. And so the attention to detail on the infantry and the, the artillery crew hasn't been great. But the backers' view has always been that we, we've always done infantry, cavalry, artillery, and the equipment isn't something we've, we've been too, too, boss, too fussed about getting out in large numbers. Um, when we can marry good quality infantry, artillery, and right. AFBs and soft skins, all to the same standard, I think we've got something people will be very, very interested in. That's that's our next year to eighteen wow. months. That, that's that's exciting uh, news. I'm really, I'll I'll really be looking forward to that. Uh, any any chance at all that you'll revisit the fantasy range? Yes, yeah. The I, would, I was actually talking about this yesterday with somebody. The it's all a matter of shuffling resources. Basically, uh, it's the the sculptor who will be doing the fantasy is the one who is working okay. with us on the seventeenth and eighteenth century projects. Uh, he's uh, so until he's finished those, he won't be touching anything else. Uh, anybody who knows where we work, we take a project yeah. and we start at A and we finish at Z and we do everything in between. Right. We don't leave half completed ranges. Right. Because that is the bait of any Wargaming <laughs> collector. I'm sure oh, anybody yeah. who's listening to the podcast has been on the end of that one. Uh, so that's yeah. that's something we've always done, and I think yeah. the customers appreciate that. <laughs> it means you have yeah. to wait. But when your time comes, you get it. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, he he, were, he will be working through, as I said, the, the Thirty Years' War, the, uh, the Nine Years' War, the Great North War. And at that stage, there'll be one of two directions. Uh, it will either be fantasy, or 
uh, another long-standing project. If you remember right at the beginning of this podcast, I mm. mentioned mm-hmm. uh, my mate Ian Beck's Book Wars rules. Um, we're trying to get these reprinted. They've been out of print for decades, but they, they've achieved a sort of legendary status, especially right. here in the UK, uh, where we took the game around the, the show circuits. And if the timing is right, uh, what I will also be doing is releasing a Pony Wars range. Sure, sure. Uh, Hollywood. This is Hollywood Pony Wars. It's it's not realistic range, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, you get everybody appearing it. Uh, the Lone Ranger yeah. pops up for some reason at some stage, but you get wagon trains and settlers, and, and it's it, it, it's fun. Right. But we will need to to put the sculpt onto doing those. Uh, because he's a chap who did our American Civil War range, which mm-hmm. will be doubling for obviously the the Seventh Cavalry throughout all of this. Right. So we want them to be compatible. So that would push the fantasy onto the back burner, and then we do your fantasy. And again, we have ideas. Uh, so wow, we do it big. We would do it spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. And it would right. be the best fantasy range on the market. Well, that's that's certainly exciting. That that In sounds like a very very ambitious. 18 to 24 months to say the least for for any for any uh, figure manufacturer and and pushing the envelope as well with uh, the technology that's currently available and just to see where 3d printing was two years ago compared to where it is now and where it's going to be in two years from now it, it's going to be a pretty exciting time in in the hobby I feel Oh yeah, I, I would agree. It, it, it's it's as everybody's pointing out, it is a bit of a game changer. Um, Long term, I mean, people talk about uh, printing their own um, pre-painted armies on demand and things like that. I'm 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 a little, a little less um, optimistic about. I think by the time it becomes affordable right. and every day, I'll be long gone. I know it's yeah. moving quickly, but I, I think there is a there is a uh, a limit. I mean, I look at colour laser printers. Uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, you were talking £15,000. Now, they're sort of like £300. Um, so, yes, you, you can't predict how fast that will move, but looking at the physical constraints of what these machines yeah. are doing, even working at the best of what they do today, I still think there's some way off. Uh, and the materials they use... With with smaller models, I don't think people are much producing smaller models. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the too fragile for, for use. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Not entirely, because it's it's still all within the purview of the hobby. Now, if you started talking about F one racing, that'd be another thing. But then I could bring it back with uh, you know playing Formula Day with Matchbox cars or something. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. You win that one. Yeah, I, I can always I can always bring it back on topic pretty quickly. It's the mark of a good host, Jay. Mark of a good host. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Peter, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, as always, folks, in the show notes, I'll have links to uh, Bacchus and the Facebook pages for Bacchus and Joy of Six, and of course the uh, the opinion piece in particular that kind of spurred this conversation. I I would like to say that I'll be doing some six mil painting in the near future, but I've got quite, quite a few other projects ahead of it. Uh, my son has gotten into the Warhammer 40,000 orcs in a major way, so that I've got a gigantic pile 
<laughs> of orcs to paint for him. Uh, he's he's practicing himself on some old on some old goblins. So he's he's got some ways to go, but he's enthusiastic about it, and enthusiasm will take you a long way. So, well, if it's any consolation, Jake, uh, the show yesterday, um, I picked up a bag of second-hand plastic gaze mm-hmm. goblins uh, because I have a five-year-old who wants to start painting like Daddy. Oh, excellent! So, so uh, he's got his he's got his. See, I, I, I'm far more open-minded than possible people. Oh, think. absolutely! It it, it um, is a big tent. Now, which which goblins are they? Are they the from the first box set that they did with the with the elves, or the more recent one? Or do you? I will pass entirely on that okay. question. <laughs> um, the goblins, and I think that's about as far as my knowledge goes. Or really, I want it to go. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to me. It's it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I've been a fan of Bacchus Six Millimeter since, well, gosh, since the beginning of this century, anyway, maybe even before. Uh, I'm a big believer in the the big effect you can get with the small figures, and anyone who's listened to the show knows that when done correctly, it's a really big impression with not a lot of I don't I don't want to say effort but it, it it doesn't take a lot of time to make that to make that effect felt if that makes sense either in the preparation or on the table I mean you can you can take a look at a six mil game and instantly tell what level it's at you know you don't have to ask someone is this uh you know did you bathtub this down or or anything like that you know that you're looking at a good size game yeah, it's it's remarkably good at conveying what you're yep. trying to do, because you're focusing on the big picture and not the individual, because the individual cannot give you that, that overview, um, and that is why it's, it's it's so good at what it does. Yep, yep, great stuff. Small, you know, I'm you know, less than ten for the win is <laughs> is my is one of my gaming mottos anyway. Well, again, Peter, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the show. And folks, as always, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold, 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.